0: Peter Wyatson fires, he scores! Bulls win! Bulls win for the third year in four!
1: The North Iowa Bulls are Silver Cup champions!
0: Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the final edition of the North Iowa Bulls podcast for the 2016 2017 season. My name is Vinny Paraselli. Joining me on the line is Austin Droughty. He announced the whole weekend in Romeoville at the Silver Cup, had the call for all three games of the Bulls in round robin. He had the call for the semifinals, and he had the call for the championship that uh, saw our rivals from Granite City taking home their third Silver Cup in team history, tying the Bulls for the most Silver Cups, as each team has three in the six years that the NA3 has been known as the NA3HL. Austin, joining us now on the phone. Austin, I know your weekend was great. How's your day going so far?
1: Going, it's uh, back to the grind again. It's a little bit weird with no hockey to look forward to, but it's
0: uh, it's happening. Well, let's, let's jump right into the Silver Cup tournament. Let's let's go with like a recap of how the days went. I mean, on Wednesday, which game did which game early game did you have on Wednesday?
1: Uh, the early game on Wednesday would have been uh, Granite City and Metro, and just a dominant performance for, for the Metro Jets against Granite City. Not a real great way to start the tournament for uh, the Lumberjacks, but the Jets got off to a pretty good start.
0: Well, you saw the Jets grab a 3-0 win there. On the other rink, it was St. Louis beating Atlanta 4-2. On rink two, Binghamton dominated Long Beach by a score of 8-1, to and then you got to call the Bulls' opening loss to the Yellowstone Quake by a score of four to two we went to Thursday and you had which game did you have Metro once again
1: uh, Thursday would have been Metro and Atlanta that was that was the upset special for the uh, for the tournament it was uh, North Iowa beating Binghamton that night uh, Metro got beat by Atlanta Thursday was an interesting day at the Silver Cup
0: Thursday was very interesting especially when Granite City gets a come from behind win against St. Louis they win four three they trailed three one at one point. Brady Dahl scoring the game-winning goal with about 2.9 seconds left to play. Yellowstone on Thursday clinched their spot in the semifinals by defeating Long Beach 5-2. We go to the final day of pool play, and I believe you had the Metro Gents once again, or did you have Atlanta and Granite City? Uh, That one I
1: had, Atlanta and Granite City. Kevin Gere, our buddy from St. Louis, and uh, the Jets and the Junior
0: Blues that day. That's right. You were on rink one all day that day. Granite City grabbing a 6-2 win to advance. Metro 5-3 win. The game-winning goal coming with under a minute left, and the Jets added an empty netter to win 5-3 and eliminate the Blues. Binghamton beating the Yellowstone Quake 3-2, and, of course, your North Isle Bulls in their season finale, taking out the Long Beach Sharks by a score of 8-4. If you weren't there on Saturday because you went home because the Bulls were eliminated, you would have seen Metro take care of Yellowstone by a score of six to one, and Granite City knock off the Binghamton Junior Senators by a score of three to two. And then finally on Sunday, Austin with the call, the Granite City Lumberjacks taking down the Metro Jets. The eight seed. We said in the podcast to start the week that this was the most dangerous eight seed the Silver Cup might ever see. And of course, they win it all by beating the Jets two one. I'm going to put this into one question. What was your biggest takeaway from the Silver Cup tournament as a whole?
1: I think it was just the the parody of the league itself and the parody of the tournament. Uh, Like you said, the the Granite City Lumberjacks are the eighth seed. They played the Metro Jets. Not only the first game of the tournament, the 4 o'clock game on Wednesday, but uh, the last game of the tournament, and they came back to beat them on uh, Sunday had yeah, the one, two, three, and eight seeds making it into the uh, into the, the final weekend. The Bulls were the six seed; they were on the verge. Uh, Atlanta picked up their win over Metro on Thursday. It was uh, it was an interesting tournament, just the way the uh, the parity worked out. I was very very impressed with all eight teams that uh, that made it down to the Silver Cup this year. It was an entertaining tournament, and you could never really tell uh, from game to game. What team? Not necessarily what teams are going to show up, but what teams were going to be better than the other teams. I thought uh, it was it was a fantastic weekend, just for the league in general and uh, and for the hockey that all eight teams played down there.
0: Well, Wednesday, I mean, when you really look at the seedings, you know, the highest seeds won out: Metro, St. Louis, Yellowstone, Binghamton. All notch wins on the first day of the tournament. Then on Thursday, things got really really weird. And it started with the game that you had: the Atlanta Capitals. Maybe pulling off the upset of the tournament in the terms of you know Atlanta. I know we say you know Granite City was the eight seed, but Atlanta we thought was maybe you know the wild card of this tournament. They go out and defeat the Metro Jets by a score of three to two. You have Granite City on rank one, who like we said was down four one. They score three goals in the third period to come back and win. Yellowstone Long Beach wasn't much drama, but then we have the Bulls and the Sens getting tied up late and going to overtime. The only overtime game. Of the tournament, Thursday I thought really was the the turning point of this tournament for a lot of teams. Would you agree?
1: Oh, absolutely. Uh, things were uh, uh, things were good for the Bulls. We knew at that point they were kind of shaky, but you know the Bulls. If they win, they get a little bit of help. The is playing the number one team on Friday in the uh, in the pool. Things are still good for the Bulls. Atlanta can move through. Uh, Granite City can move through. All of the teams in the afternoon pool, pool A, were one and one at that point. So everybody had a shot to move through. Long Beach at that point was really the only team out of the tournament. So yeah, Thursday absolutely was the turning point of the tournament for uh, for all of the teams, especially in the afternoon pool, where you get teams like uh, like Atlanta and uh, and Granite City going to the going into the day knowing that they're on the ropes if they don't win here. They win games in dramatic fashion, and all of a sudden, you know, they're feeling good about their chances. So it was it was a very important day in the uh, in the tournament, especially for the lower seeds.
0: Well, on Friday we could basically basically call win and end day. Pool A, like you mentioned, Metro and St. Louis. Winner moves on, loser goes home. Granite City, Atlanta. Winner moves on, loser goes home. In the Bulls' case, it was if you lose, you're done. If you win, you got a pretty good chance of getting in. Binghamton, obviously, win, and you're in. So, you know, pretty easy when it came down to breaking all these, you know, scenarios down of who can get in, who can get out. I mean, Pool A was just, you know, the running was on the wall. Win and, like, basically, Friday was your semifinal day almost. You just had to keep going and keep winning to keep playing. Unfortunately, like we, uh, we all know here in Bulls Nation, an 8-4 win was not good enough. I mean, they were up 4 nothing in the first seven minutes. And probably immediately, if I was a Bulls fan and actually could just watch the game, I would have just stopped watching the Bulls game and went over to the Binghamton-Yellowstone game. Because at one point, you had Yellowstone up 2 nothing, looking really good.
1: And I think there were some folks at the arena who, uh, who probably did because North Iowa, they got right out to uh, that 4 nothing lead. They chased the starting goalie five minutes into the game. There were a lot of uh, there were a lot of bulls fans i think all of them probably felt pretty good about it after the uh, first seven and a half minutes but uh, i think there were some folks who uh, came back over the railing walked back over and uh, and checked out the yellowstone and dingo game cuz that that was really the decider for the bulls the bulls decided that game against long beach early obviously there's a lot of hockey left to be played but uh, getting a 4 to nothing lead seven and a half minutes in, you're feeling pretty good about it at that point. So I think there were some people who uh, kind of went over to the, uh, the other game looking for a little bit of suspense, looking for a little bit of confirmation too. They wanted to see it. Are we in? Are we not in?
0: Well, also, I feel like if the Bulls were to blow a four-goal lead on a game they need to win in order to have a chance to keep playing, they don't deserve to be in the semifinals. I think – I think Coach Santa would have made everyone walk home if they would have lost that game up 4 nothing seven minutes into the game. And the thing, too, Yellowstone, a two-goal lead. The two-goal lead didn't last long itself as uh, Binghamton was able to get it to one almost right away. So it was 2-1 going to the third, and then about two goals and in about a minute and 15 seconds. Binghamton all of a sudden has the lead, and they don't relinquish it. And pretty much, I think everyone in the crowd knew Either just as the third period started, or maybe you know, just a couple minutes in, that this was going to be the final period of Bulls hockey. Did you sense that in the crowd?
1: I, you definitely sense that in the crowd, especially when the Bulls started scoring some of those goals late in the uh, in the game. They scored a couple of goals here in the third period with Brendan's goal about eight minutes in, uh, Nick's goal about three minutes to go, and really after those goals, there just wasn't the same sort of Push, the same sort of surge from the crowd that we've usually seen, that we've usually heard after the Bulls scored. It was, I think the crowd said, the folks in the crowd said, these are some bittersweet goals. Yeah, these goals are, uh, are going to help pad the lead a little bit. They're going to rebuild the lead back to four goals in both cases. But no matter how many goals we score, this is it. We're not getting uh, into the semifinals. So it, the, the crowd definitely uh, told the tale. In those final, those final twenty minutes, especially for
0: those last couple of goals. All right, now let's move to Saturday. Let's recap the end, the end of the tournament. You were there; we were not. The team had gone home. Tell us about the Metro Yellowstone game because, I mean, up until about late in the second period, this was a one-goal, two-goal hockey game. you. It, uh,
1: it, you start. To, it was a very suspenseful game. The first, uh, I wouldn't even say. Maybe the first 40 minutes of the game, Max Donner uh, had a great response. Graham Day had the initial goal about a minute and a half to go in the first period for Metro. And that was really uh, kind of a turning point of the game. But uh, Max Donner got some help from Tony Dahlberg two and a half minutes into the second period, had a great response. And uh, even when uh, even when Lynch and Distelraff scored in the second period, he kind of got the feeling going to the third, okay, it's a two-goal game. You've got a Yellowstone team, though, that has been so tough to play against all all tournament long. If they can get a one, if they can cut it down to a one goal game here, it's going to change the whole complexion of the game. And then Connor Inger scored about a minute, a little a little more than a minute into the third period, and you kind of knew what direction the uh, the game was going to go. But you look at the second game there uh, with uh, Granite City and Binghamton, and it was uh, it was one of those games where. Uh, both teams really had to grind out the whole sixty minutes of the game, and uh, Binghamton took an early penalty. Granite City wasn't able to capitalize on it. Eric Moser took a penalty in the first period. Granite or uh, Binghamton wasn't able to capitalize on it. And then you had uh, Moser and uh, and Bogdwell colliding knee to knee in the neutral zone about a minute and a half to go in the first period, and it just. It was a lot earlier in the game than, uh, than Tyler's penalty in the third period against Binghamton for our Bulls. But you just had that feeling this could be a real turning point in the game and maybe not a good one for Granite City. The fact that they were able to burn uh, uh, Sal Loretta out of the net a couple of times. Andre Jimneski had a fantastic uh, steal right behind the net and uh, caught Loretta out of the net, buried one in the shorthand. Then they were able to score a second one. On the shorthand, even though eventually they did give up one power play goal, they got another one about halfway through the second. They were up three to one, and you kind of got that feeling: okay, they need to grind out a third period here. But and and Binghamton, there was no team in the tournament by far that made a lead harder to hold than Binghamton. But you kind of got that feeling: those two shorthanded goals, they meant a little bit more than your average two to nothing lead, even against a team like the Sens that, uh, that made those leads so hard to hold. But it was it was one of those games that was just one of the best hockey games you'll ever watch. I remember, uh, I think it was Ryan Riefler, tried to come off the ice about uh, a minute and a half to go in the game. He was just out of breath. He was down in, uh, outside the crease, and he didn't get up. He was on all fours. The Granite City crowd was yelling at him to, uh, to get up. Because had come back into the game at that point, he wound up being okay. So I think the Granite City crowd is a little bit on edge. He was down just trying to catch his breath, and the crowd's yelling at him to get up. And finally, uh, Binghamton's coach calls timeout, and, uh, and they burn their timeout, get their goalie out of the net. But that was the kind of game that Binghamton and Granite City was. The guys came off the ice at the end of the game completely and totally. Out of breath, and uh, and Ryan Riefler is just one player I think who embodied that. It was one of the best hockey games that uh, that I've ever seen, and it was never over until the final seconds ticked away, because uh, just because of the way Binghamton made those leads so hard to hold throughout the uh, the weekend, and really everything that we heard about their power play. I don't know if the, if they were actually seventy one percent during the. Uh, during the regular season on the power play. Those numbers may have been a little higher than they should have been. But really, their power play, everything that was said about their special teams was true over the weekend. It really was.
0: Well, it's nice to get two five-minute power plays in a span of four games. I feel like that's something that's very uncommon. But like you mentioned, to give up not one but two shorthanded goals, I mean, that can't happen in a semifinal game. Where there, just, I mean, was there, you said there's a steal from Jim Nishki. Uh, what was how was the Moran one play out?
1: Ah, uh, the Moran one. I, I'm not exact. I can't remember exactly for sure. I think uh, I think Loretta got caught out of his crease again, though maybe on the wrong side of the crease. And uh, Moran got a tip into the uh, into the net. It happened kind of quickly, but I'll tell you what. After the uh, after that goal uh, was scored by Moran a minute into the second period. You just kinda of had a feeling something something weird but something special is happening right now for this Granite City team. And it was. It really
0: was. I mean you could say that it's been happening special for them all, since Thursday. I mean, really the game winning goal by Dahl, which you know saves them a point in the sense that, you know, three points for a regulation win compared to two points for an overtime win, you get a save there. I mean you get two shorthanded goals in a semifinal game. All right, tell us about the championship. Obviously, Metro, doing what I feel like Metro does the last couple years in these Silver Cup championship games, they get an early goal on the power play, and then they just can't do anything else the rest of the game. Mac Berglove named the tournament MVP. Tell us about the Silver Cup championship game between Metro and Granite City that you called. Uh, Again, yeah,
1: an incredible uh, championship game. Evan Newell got that goal uh, about 3 minutes 41 seconds into the first period. Uh, just a couple of uh, just a couple of rebound chances there for Granite City in the second period, a minute apart. But again, Metro is never out of the uh, game. And you know, when you talk about Mac Bergla being the MVP of the tournament, there was one sequence in the uh, in the third period, right about halfway through, where I really think he cemented his spot as the uh, the MVP. A couple of scrambles at the net. One of them was actually tipped in, but it went in after the whistle. Uh, Tyler Brumfield had seen the puck. I actually got a chance to uh, talk with his linesman about it, Sam Rankin, uh, after the fact. And uh, Tyler had seen the puck kind of trapped underneath his pad, just hadn't had a chance to blow the whistle yet. By the time he blew the whistle, the guys thought they'd scored it free. They tipped it in, and, uh, and the play was a little dead. Second opportunity to scramble in front of the net. metro got three point-blank chances at it. The second one was tipped off of the edge of the post and tapped right back in front where, uh, where Birdlove could dive on top of it. Really, I thought those two plays, and they were back-to-back whistles midway through the third period, I thought really defined the game and defined what that Birdlove meant to his team, not just uh, over, the, over the tournament, but really over the last couple of seasons and especially what he meant for the team this season as he gets set to go off to college next year.
0: Well, there's been six years of the NA3 Silver Cup. The Bulls have three titles, and now Granite City has three titles. It's a very, very exclusive club that the Metro Jets have just not been able to get into. And I mentioned this before we went on the air. The Jets are halfway to becoming the Buffalo Bills of the NA3HL. I mean, only two losses away. And given how this team has developed its players, how they send guys up to the gnaw, There's a real good chance they could be back for round three next season.
1: Oh, I think absolutely. There's a very good chance this uh, Metford team could be back next year. You know, you look at the guys that they lose every single year. They lost their goaltending last year. They've got both goalies set to come back next year. Andrew Cormos won five games for them during the postseason. Uh, Jake Willem won a couple of games for them during the postseason as well. Both of those guys are, are eligible to come back next year. And really, they have a tandem of number one goalies who uh, who have led them all season long. Mark Flannery, uh, the Schwartzes, Mark and Cam. They're not related, but they got the same last name. George Hanson, they've got some pretty defensemen who are 97s, uh, ready to come back next year. And uh, you look at guys like Keaton Wins, Louis Boudon, the French native, a very skilled player for them. Uh, here this year, Griffin-Sawyer, got a lot of chances to uh, lead the, the rush up the ice. They've got some real good players coming back for next year, and I think this is going to be another gritty team here in, uh, in 2017 and 18. Depending on how much depth that uh, Justin Quinville is able to build around them, I think this could be a team that makes another very, very good run to, uh, to the Silver Cup tournament next year, if not... Uh, through the playoffs all the way down to the
0: uh, the final four weekend. All right, we have to talk about them because they are, let's see, like the title of this show, the North Iowa Bulls. We're going to talk more specifically about them now. The biggest thing that I feel like all the guys will definitely say, you know, was the issue in this run at the Silver Cup was the first game against Yellowstone, the inability to convert on chances. And I have probably about three or four solid clips of the puck seemingly about to go over the line, and for whatever reason, it hits the post, it hits a pad, it rolls across the line but doesn't cross it. I mean, the way they played in that second period against Yellowstone, they could have been up potentially 5-2 to two or 6-2 to two at the end of that period. The puck luck was not on their side. What did you observe from Wednesday's loss against the Quake?
1: Yeah, the, the puck luck was part of it. It just seemed like there was always something small. And I mentioned this with uh, with Andy Ritter, the Binghamton broadcaster, during our pregame on Thursday. It was always something small. I think the word we used was innocuous. It's something that really doesn't seem like it's going to hurt you at the time. Just uh, on one play, it would be a slow run up the uh, up neutral ice where uh, Yellowstone's back check was more than quick enough to get back and uh, and cut it off. Maybe it would be a weak side pass where there was nobody there, or a rebound that would go to the weak side where there is nobody there. It was always something small. But when you add those little things up over the course of a game, especially when you add it to a night where the puck luck, like you said, just was not there, you need to make your own opportunities. You need to create your own chances. And I thought the Bulls that night, on a couple of opportunities did, but really, as a theme of the night, they didn't create a lot of their own chances. And it wound up
0: kind of getting them there at the end of the game. Yeah, that's one of the – I have three reasons why North Iowa did not make semifinal Saturday. That's one of them, the multiple chances that just could not cross the line. Part two of that is the major penalty the Tyler bump against Binghamton, and that happened, obviously, in Thursday's game against the Sens. I mean, it's a 2 nothing game. You're halfway to – you know, halfway through the period, getting to the victory. And then I'm not going to say – it was a stupid penalty because after watching it a number of times, I don't think it was meant to be anything you know, intentional, intentional, but the way that the Binghamton player falls into the boards, I could see why it's called a five. I could see why he gets a game misconduct. But you're just asking for trouble when you give a team with as vaunted a power play as they have five minutes in a two-goal game where probably the next – goal is the most crucial. I mean, if the Bulls got it, it's a 3 nothing game. Binghamton's probably down themselves. It's over. Where if you know the Senators get that goal and make it a one-goal game, now all of a sudden it's like, uh-oh. And I think that's reason number two why the Bulls didn't make the semifinals is that penalty against Tyler Bump. I'm not going to say it ended up costing him, but it gave Binghamton life that you don't want to give a team that's that good.
1: I think so, and the— thing that I remember thinking during that second period after uh, Josh Arnold got a tripping minor there, uh, that was really the only power play that uh, that was the first power play that Binghamton got up until uh, Tyler Bump's boarding major there, but uh, really the thing that I remember thinking during that power play, especially having not been able to see them play against Yellowstone or against Long Beach previous night is they they just don't give up. they are They're pit bulls. They come right back after you, again and again and again. They go right back at you. And everything that uh, now they covered the space so well. If there is a play out along the half wall, the Bulls try to clear it out. They had a man out there. They wanted to go weak side. They had a man there. If they wanted to uh, reverse the puck around the net and uh, and and uh, cycle it around the backside of the net, they had somebody there. They covered the space so well. And they just kept coming and coming and coming, and uh, really, you know, when when that boarding major happened halfway through the third period, I thought, you know, if the Bulls can if the Bulls can clear out this five minutes, they're going to be in great shape. But if they can't, they're going to be in a lot of trouble because uh, there's five guaranteed minutes of power play time there, and that uh, that goal that Connor Landrigan got Dominic Bagnuel. Helped him out on it. Uh, about seven minutes to go in the third period, I think. That was uh, that was kind of a moment where you realized something might be happening here, and uh, and both fans are not going to like it.
0: Yeah, it, I mean, I when I saw that puck go in, I go, I, I literally just said to myself, "Oh no!" Like I just I knew because you know you know how you get into that third period, and fans know this as well. You know, it's two nothing, and all of a sudden you start looking at the clock ever so often. You know, and it just doesn't go as fast as you want it to go. And I just knew something – like, I just had that feeling that something bad was going to happen, of course it did. And, of course, Landrigan got another goal to tie it up. We went to overtime, and at this point, the Bulls' season is on the line. I mean, are we going to come to Friday with, you know, just going to watch a play a game and then go home? Or are we going to, you know, go into Friday saying, we got a chance, and the 96, Nick Klischko – I mean, I don't know his whole hockey story, but it's got to be the biggest goal of his life to keep not only his kind of career going, but the Bulls' Silver Cup chances alive. Huge goal from him, 49 seconds in. Of course, you and the Binghamton announcer were splitting the game, so somehow you got the first and the third, and he ended up with the second period and overtime. So I'm going to put this nicely, because it was an okay call in terms of you know call standards, but... There was nowhere near the amount of enthusiasm that would have been there had you gotten the overtime call.
1: Well, I'd, I'd agree with that. I, I kind of took the chance at the beginning of the game where you know, we, we agreed I'd get the first and third period calls, so he gets get the second period call, but I kind of took a risk. I didn't expect the game to go to overtime, and I, uh, I told him before the game, number number one, if we go to overtime, I'm going to keep it. I'm going to keep it even because we're we're both professionals here. I'll give him the call for overtime, and if Bingenson's ahead by you know more than a couple of goals going into the final minute, if Bingenson's obviously going to win this game, got to turn it over to to Andy. Let him finish it out to, for his home team. But I I wasn't expecting the game to go to overtime. I really didn't think it was going to go to overtime, and actually I was. Once
0: the game did go to overtime, I thought, oh, shoot. <laughs> well, playoff game in, in this magnitude, you got the two seed, you got a six seed, North Iowa playing for the lives. I mean, I'm not going to say overtime is – I mean, that was the only overtime game of the whole tournament, which I thought was pretty shocking. I figured there'd be at least a couple more. But then again, when you have Granite City scoring with two seconds left, you have Metro scoring with about 40 seconds left in their game Friday – I mean, you could see why there wasn't that many overtimes because there was a lot of late heroics in this tournament. Got to go to uh, Friday now. The Bulls have a chance, and going into the game, Yellowstone had a lead, shockingly, even though I watched probably the first 12 minutes of that first period and 90% of the action was in their zone. They had a one nothing lead on Binghamton. The Bulls, knowing that Binghamton, or Binghamton's down one, they get four goals in seven minutes, and all of a sudden we're like, okay, all right, we're doing our part. And then, of course, as Bulls fans know, Binghamton comes back to win, automatically eliminates the Bulls, so they play the third period, kind of just, you know, they go, eh, all right, whatever. There you could just kind of tell, I mean, especially on the fourth goal from Long Beach, I mean, that was probably one of the weakest goals Drew Seitz has let in all year. And I don't think really anyone reacted. Garcia goes, oh, man, I, I scored. Cool, awesome. And they just skated back to the bench. There was no celebration. Everyone knew that this was their final You know, 20 minutes of hockey, and you could really sense it in that arena at the time. My third reason for why the Bulls did not make semifinal Saturday is the only six points from the 96s, three from Klitschko. He had a good weekend, but only one point from Larson, Pied, and Collins. Uh, Larson with a goal, Pied, and Collins with an assist. And I know we didn't have many 96s, only four. I mean, five if you count Lions, but obviously he wasn't able to play. Four ninety sixes, and you only get six points out of those four guys. You're gonna need a little more from your veteran leadership in order to win games in the playoffs.
1: I think I think the Bulls needed uh, quite a bit from everybody here, and certainly the ninety sixes have to uh, be the leaders. And I think they certainly were in the uh, in the locker room. But you have to remember, Eric, tight. Ty- he's been more of a uh, more of a plus minus or setup guy for uh, for his team. He, if there is a third assist, Eric usually is the uh, is the man behind that? But I, I think the Bulls could have used a little bit more out of their 96s. And I know uh, Braxton probably wasn't real happy with the way the, uh, the weekend turned out for him. He's been with the Cooley Region Chile, he's been at the North American Hockey League. I I'm, I'm sure he expected a little bit more of himself uh, over the weekend. And uh, you know he's he's seen that upper level of hockey. He's uh, seen the game at a little bit faster pace than uh, the other guys have just because he's played in the North American Hockey League. And I'm sure the fact that he wasn't able to get a lot of points on the, uh, on the stat sheet this weekend probably weighed on his mind a little bit. But like you said, there, there were four 96ers on the roster for the Bulls here this year. Owen got some fantastic plays, even if not all of them. Uh, wound up in the back of the net. Kalishko had a fantastic weekend. Uh, Sean Maloney, fantastic line-mate for him to uh, set him up on a couple of those plays. So really, I, I didn't think it was quite as bad for the 96s as, uh, as you might think, but I'm sure the, uh, the extra points that Braxton would have liked to have, the extra opportunities that he had that he wasn't able to finish up, I'm sure a couple of those are probably weighing on his mind this week, too.
0: Top performers for the Bulls at Silver Cup, Sean Mountie, like you mentioned, five points led all Bulls skaters, Connor Clemens. Four goals. Brendan Studioso, a pair of goals and a pair of assists. Mitch Dolter, a pair of goals in the final game, as well as an assist. And Nick Klischko rounding out the top five with two goals and a helper. So those are your top five performers from the North Isle Bulls. Good to note, though, that four of those guys are eligible to come back next season. Maloney still has two. Maloney and Clemens each have two years of eligibility left, while Studioso has three more years. So I mean, the potential is there. Obviously for some veteran leadership. I mean Maloney, I feel like he should be a ninety-six by now. He's been here for you know a year and a half now. Feels like he's an older than just ninety-eight and ninety-eight. Like, oh my god, he's so young. So young. Uh Drew Sights in goal, two and one on the weekend. He's also a ninety-eight, for those wondering. Three sixteen goals against, an eight seventy-seven save percentage. Um not what you want, but I thought his best game was definitely the Binghamton game where he had a shutout for you know, fifty three minutes or so. I thought his worst game was definitely the Yellowstone game. I'm sure there are a couple of goals he'd like back, but, you know, overall I don't think he played that poorly. I really don't. And I I was one that I say I questioned the goaltending coming in, but I wasn't comfortable with it. I just I didn't see it yet. Obviously, you know, going from David Johnson and Tommy Algren to this year's crop of goaltenders, it's a huge difference when you have, you know, one A and one B at like we had last year, so I didn't think he played bad overall, but uh, let's look at next year real quick. Potentially, obviously not every single person is going to come back, but 20 potential returners for the Bulls, 13 of them would be 97s, which would be next year's age-out year, and I'm just spitballing here. Arnold, Studioso, Dolter, Bump, Maloney, and Clemens, that's a heck of a top six. Uh, and And I think I left out Marshall Barnes there, too. The top six, I mean, is going to be unreal for the Bulls next year. And then on defense, you got five potential defensemen coming back who were here all year. So, I mean, the the core is definitely there for sure. And like Owen Larson kind of said in our interview after the Long Beach game, if they don't get it done this year, I mean, like you said, I don't know. Because this year is definitely a year where the Bulls should be contending for a championship.
1: Oh yeah, we uh, we didn't even get a chance to uh, to mention Marshall uh, at the Silver Cup. He only had a couple of assists, which seems uh, a little low for just the way he's played the last couple of years with the Bulls. He only had a couple of assists uh, over the past weekend, but yeah, you look at the guys coming back uh, over the next few years, and really, I like the uh, I like what the Bulls have to offer here during uh, the 2017 and 18 season. And I think the 97 class was going to be a, just a fantastic group of kids. You mentioned uh, Arnold Dolter coming back. Uh, bump. I thought Tom Riley, too. He uh, he didn't play a ton during the final uh, couple of months of the season when he was here, but when he was on the ice, he was a playmaker for the Bulls as well and you know had probably one of the hardest shots of, uh, of anybody on the team. There's going to be a little bit of development. There's going to be a little bit of improvement as there always is, but Uh, I I think next year could really be a fantastic year for this Bulls team uh, with all the guys you mentioned. We'll be coming back next year. Jake Joy will be coming back. And really, uh, in Mike Lyon's absence during the last month or so of the season, I don't know that there was a better quarterback of a power play unit, certainly in the Central Division, maybe not uh, even within the Silver Cup tournament, than uh, what Jake Joy was able to provide.
0: Absolutely, I agree. Jake Joy, last month, like... I used to kind of see Joel as, you know, a 5 or 6, maybe even a 7 because there'd be plenty of times where he was sitting out. But this last month, man, he's just turned his whole game around. I think it's just more he's just playing with confidence now. I think he finally is just feeling comfortable being in the system. You know, like you said, running the power play now. You know, you saw the departure of Steven Mordini, the injury to Mike Lyons. So, I mean, he was really forced into a role that maybe he wasn't expecting and he's thrived so far. Also on that blue line, Dayton honking him has potential to be the next Adam Moore next year, or Joe Clevin. I really think his offensive numbers next season are going to be through the roof. He's, I mean, he's, he's played forward for the Bulls. He has that offensive mentality, and he's got a little meanness to him where he's going to go into the corners if he needs to and win battles for pucks and get it to an open forward. I really like Dayton Hawking coming back, and then Shane Bernhardtson, the captain, uh, one of the captains coming back. I don't expect huge offensive numbers from him, but I expect more than one goal. I think he's due for two. Okay.
1: I think that's fair, and uh, you know, some of the other guys uh, that you mentioned, I counter Clemens at ninety-eight coming back. We saw him in some uh, some skirmishes at the end of the plays as well. But uh, that happens when you're going after, you're going after rebounds, you're going after pucks in front of the net that uh, maybe the goaltender gets to a little bit before you can get there. The opposing team doesn't like you going after a puck when their goaltender might have it. So what? Uh, I I think Connor Clemens is going to have some grit to him next year as well. He's a he's a go getter for this team, and uh, I think he's going to be a fun kid to watch. Certainly next year, uh, probably in the next couple of years.
0: I would say an expectation for Connor Clemens would be forty goals. I mean, if not more, I think he could be pushing for fifty. I mean, the kid, he just knows how to score. And I and I've seen throughout the year. There's times where say Todd or Hicks or even Murdoch would. Not so much be mad at him, but just not like the way he's playing the game positionally. He's not maybe getting back or not playing a 200-foot game. But there's no denying the kid could put the puck in the net. And at the end of the day, that's what you need. You need to score goals to win this game.
1: I thought he played the neutral zone really, really well this year. He and Larson both stayed up on on the forecheck a lot this year. When the Bulls were able to really stretch out the neutral zone and they'd throw the puck ahead, it was always Connor or Owen, it seemed. That, uh, that was in open space, ready to run it in one on the goalies. I think that's really going to help next year. If the Bulls can stretch out the neutral zone the way they did in, uh, in March this year, Connor, uh, Connor's going to give him a pretty good uh, head start as far as getting those uh, runs up the ice and getting breakaways, getting odd man rushes going to the net.
0: All right, I have a bold prediction here. You could agree with me or not. Bold prediction here. Tyler Bump, I'll be, you know, if he comes back, obviously, and plays a full season, Scores sixty goals next season.
1: I don't know that I would go with sixty goals for uh, for Tyler. I would start. Uh, I don't think fifties out of the question at all. The way he played this year and just his instincts that he showed this year for uh, the Bulls. If sixty goals is hard, I don't care who you play against. Sixty goals is uh, is a hard uh, number to to crack here in the NA3HL. But uh, fifty goals, I don't think, would be out of the question at all for a kid like Tyler Bump, the way he played at the end of the season. If he comes back and plays a full year for the Bulls next year, he's, uh, he's going to have one heck of a season.
0: Well, the new record, now that it's been broken, unfortunately, is 61 by Brandon Corey of Rock City. I just think with Tyler Bump, he scored, I believe it was 16-16 and 16 in the regular season. You give him two weekends against Chicago... You give him two weekends, or sorry, three weekends against, you know Rochester, who was, who was getting better toward the end of the season. I will give them that, but the, I feel like you know you give him four, five, six games against Wisconsin. I think there's potential to be there. I mean, he had six officially, sixteen goals in sixteen regular season games. I know he added a couple in the playoffs, but it, I think it was more the way he was scoring goals. He wasn't deking everybody out. It was kind of just like Brett Gravel. He just shot the puck and he found holes. I don't know how he did it. He played with a lot of confidence. And I feel like next year, now having you know that chemistry with some of these line mates that he built up this uh, toward the latter part of the year, I think, he, I think 60 is a realistic number for him. I really do. It's a bold prediction. I said it's bold. But I, I think he could do it if anyone could. He did say it was bold. I mean, yeah, I'm not, I'm not saying he's going to do it. I'm just saying that if he did do it, I'm just going to say let's replay this tape and just say I told you so. That's all. All right, biggest news of the day that we need to break for everyone. Kohei Sato, former North Iowa Bull, has committed to the University of New Hampshire Division I Hockey East, the second former Bull to commit to a Division I school this season. The other, of course, being Jeff Solo going to Merrimack. From, Hockey Pro, or from EliteProspects.com, in 90 career games with North Iowa, including that's including the postseason, Kohei scored 47 goals, 43 assists, good for 90 points. I would say that's not bad. Point of game is not bad at all.
1: Oh, not at all. Uh, especially with the, the speed that he has, the dynamic way that he plays the, uh, the game, and especially the way he played in the playoffs last year to get the goals to the Silver Cup title. And 17 points in nine playoff games, just an unbelievable number. For uh, for Kohei or any player in the uh, in the three HL, he's still one of the he's still one of the fastest players that I've ever seen. Certainly, the fastest player at the tier three level. I'm a little bit surprised he didn't get more of a look from uh, from more USHL teams. And I really think when he gets to New Hampshire, he's going to turn some heads when he gets there. Rick, kid coming out of a four win team in the North American League, played uh, most of his junior career. In the NA3HL, I think uh, I think he's going to be under the radar to start, but I really don't think he's going to stay there for very long. Once he gets settled in and he gets some playing time for uh, for UNAs.
0: I mean, the fact that you we're just talking about two D1 guys from North Iowa, but you know, Solo is great and all. I like Solo, great kid, but, but. This is like a pure NA3 guy. I mean, he only played about 50 games in the NA this season. The majority of his development came in North Iowa, and I think that's the most, you know, amazing thing in all this is you don't see too many, I mean, frankly, I don't think you see any NA3 guys getting division 1 looks considering where he was. It's not like he was a 99 and you know, he played one year in the three, two years in the NA, kind of like a Travis, Travis uh, Beetle from Granite City in Austin. He played two pretty much full years in the NA3, started out here this season, and, you know, just the fact that he's an NA3 guy going Division One, I, I think he, like, I would call him an NA3 guy. I'm not calling him a, a Northeast uh, general. I'm calling him a North Iowa Bull because that's, I think, what he is, and that's where the majority of his development came in.
1: Absolutely. Uh, the the amount of time that he played with the Bulls and the improvement that we saw in his game from the time that he started with the Bulls uh, early in the 2014-15 season to uh, to where he was partway through 2016 and 17 before he made the move to Northeast. I think you have to you have to count that development to uh, the Na3 time for him and what he was able to uh, what he was able to improve under the coaching staff here with Coach uh, Sandin and, uh, and everybody here in the, uh, in North Iowa. His development came at this level, and uh, yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. This is where his development is, and this is, you know, not to sound selfish or anything, but this team, this level, is where uh, the credit for a lot of his development deserves to be. But as you said, he gets to the North American Hockey League. You've got Division One scouts in every game. That's where he finally got that Division One chance. That's where he was discovered. But uh, his development of skill set came from right here in Mason City.
0: I would definitely have to say that I'm glad Kohei was a bit selfish because I know at one point he had the choice to either come back to North Iowa, you know, and have fun, win, because the Northeast Generals did not do much of that, and he could have been the guy. He could have been the you know Breck Gravel of last season, the Kraska and the Santa Paolo of seasons ago. He could have been the man. But he decided to be a little selfish and stay up in the gnaw with the Generals. He endured through a tough season. But at the end of the day, I mean, he kept grinding. He kept working. And yes, like you said, staying there, I think, was definitely the reason why he's a Division I prospect now because that kid, I mean, you know him as well as I do, He's a great kid, and he doesn't like to lose. He's got a competitiveness that I think really was unmatched by anyone else on this Bulls team this season. The kid just hates to lose, and he definitely, you know, he, he's earned this uh, commitment here to New Hampshire. I mean, the guy is just, I can't say nothing about it. He's a great person, great hockey player, and like you said, probably one of the fastest kids we've ever seen in the NA3. No doubt about it.
1: It shows his, uh, his outlook and his vision for his life, too. I mean, like like you said, he could have stayed here, could have won a ton. If he if he stays for the whole season, do the Bulls win the Silver Cup again? We'll never know. But uh, he goes to the North American Hockey League knowing he's going to play for a team that's not going to win very much. But if you stay in the 3HL, there's a lot of opportunities that uh, realistically, right, wrong, or indifferent, you're not going to get if you go to the North American Hockey League, grid it out for a year, see what happens. And, uh, and it proves that you know, if you're in an opportunity like the North American Hockey League, certainly the USHL, you know, even, if, even if scouts are not at those games to specifically see you, you're going to get those looks, you're going to get noticed, and, uh, and you're going to get an opportunity. So you know, three-quarters of a point uh, a game for a team that has only won four games this year that uh, that says something, I think, to a lot of uh, a lot of scouts who understand. You know, they're they're not scoring. They're not. There aren't going to be a lot of points for him to get. But the opportunities that he's getting, he's finishing off. He's taking. He's taking care of the uh, the chances that are there to get. And I think coaches at all levels are going to look very favorably on that. Certainly, the UNH coaching staff did.
0: All right, I have this um, scouting report of Kohei from. Neutral zone, the quote-unquote leading source on NCAA CHL prospect rankings, scouting reports, and hockey-related news. They have Kohei listed as a 3.5-star prospect, and he was ranked 20th among uncommitted prospects in the Nall. Separational speed. And a little more uh, detailed scouting report, uh, As uh, here's a quote from Mike Lowry. Sato was the fastest player here. His speed is elite. He was in constant motion, which made him very tough to cover. His passing and puck skills have improved since we last saw him, and he was able to play fast with the puck most of the time. His compete level was high. He only knows one speed, fast, and that does hurt him at times as he skates himself into trouble. Overall, he was impressive, and despite only scoring one goal, earned his grade, and I'm assuming this is from the top prospects because he did have a goal in the two games up in Plymouth. So I, I would say that, that description is pretty much spot on with Kohei.
1: Oh, yeah, especially when you get to the part where he says separational speed, uh, whether you're talking the NA3, uh, the way he played at the Silver Cup last year when he saw him, or uh, even the North American Hockey League, where I'm sure he was one of the fastest kids out there. I don't think there's a better phrase to describe him than separational speed. If he gets going, you're not going to catch him. It's as simple as that.
0: Yeah, good luck pretty much. All right, we are pretty much all out of time here in our final North Iowa Bulls podcast of the season. Austin, it's been a pleasure for the last ah, 20 21 weeks that we've been doing this. I'm I'm finally glad we got to actually do this one in person or at least the last one the Silver Cup show in person instead of on the phone, but your insight is unmatched in the NA3. I mean, you know more about some of these kids than I think Pierre Maguire does. And Pierre Maguire knows a lot about all these kids that come out of these junior leagues. You're, you're on that kind of level, Austin. I mean, we'll call you Adam Schefter. We call you Pierre. We call you a lot of different things because you just find this information on all these kids. So thank you for an amazing season. Obviously, your calls have definitely made the podcast more listenable than just hearing me rant the whole time about how I think the Bulls are playing. So thank you very much, my friend
1: thank you for having me and putting up with me for 21 of
0: these podcasts. Well, folks, that's going to do it for us. Once again, Austin, thank you. Thank you, the fans, for listening to us. We might sprinkle in a podcast here and there throughout the summer. We'll see how things go. I don't want to promise you anything, but maybe we'll be around when there's more news to break on your North Iowa Bulls. Once again, the Bulls do not win the Silver Cup, but they made plenty of memories this season. They'll be back, though, 20 potential returners, 13.97s, and a chance to get that Silver Cup back from Granite City. Thanks for listening, everyone. For Austin Droughty, my name is Vinny Paraselli. This has been the North Isle Bulls Podcast.